History Reread, August 2021. The Monroe Doctrine. You are very welcome to this podcast. History Reread. On the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history, something familiar that many of you will have already read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating the text audiobook style, either in full or abridged form. The Monroe Doctrine. The reread is always prompted by a headline of today. This month it is Departure of U.S. Contractors Poses Myriad Problems for Afghan Military. Written by Thomas Gibbons Neff, Helen Cooper and Eric Schmidt. Taken from the New York Times updated online on June the 20th, 2021. The withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan will create problems for ancillary services contracted to both U.S. and Afghan forces. This is not an action likely to take the U.S. in an entirely new direction. There is policy history. The so-called war on terror as a response to 9-11 was overtly about retributive justice in relation to capturing Osama bin Laden and his associates hiding in places like Afghanistan, but covertly about extending US business interests abroad in relation to oil and the provision of services related to personal and corporate security. This was more transparently America's position in 2003 as the US-led alliance prosecuted the Second Iraq War, with the then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld seeing it as a crusade bringing democracy to the people of the region. Few Iraqis in the event wanted a Western-style democracy. Fewer still wanted it in Afghanistan. This led, eventually, to a more isolationist position under the presidency of Donald Trump. What President Biden is inheriting from his predecessor will be looked at by way of conclusion. The Monroe Doctrine, an overview. American foreign policy from the time of the nation's fifth president, James Monroe, until the present can be seen through the prism of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Not fully understood as a doctrine at the time, it became so a generation later. It was meant as a warning to Europe against further colonization of the Americas. Later, in 1904, under President Theodore Roosevelt, who more punitively wanted it, as a bulwark against barbarism, a corollary was added. A further congressional re-reading following World War I was undertaken in relation to the League of Nations, which, had America signed up to, would have given foreign powers some say over deploying American troops for peacekeeping missions internationally, thus contravening the doctrine or how the doctrine was being interpreted at that point. 
We will look at this withdrawal in more detail based on what we know so far about the doctrine presently. Departure of U.S. contractors poses myriad problems for Afghan military. 9-11 The Necessary Context When the hijackers carried out the atrocities on the World Trade Center, most of the perpetrators were Saudi citizens trained in various parts of the world, but chiefly in Afghanistan and, to a lesser extent, Pakistan. Now as then, the Saudi government generally goes about doing the United States bidding, dutifully enough, at diplomatic level, as the mega-plurocratic interests of the royal family holding dominion over the Arabian Peninsula are inextricably linked to the wealth wrapped up with America's military-industrial complex, that is to say, the nexus of oligarchic wealth and arms. Prior to 9-11, the defense of the free world was the U.S.'s central business concern throughout the Cold War, during which it maintained its position as the world's leading economy by some stretch from both capitalist competitors and communist systems against capital. It was clear who the enemy was and how they denied their citizens' freedom. The free world was underpinned by the hydrocarbon economy, emblematic of which was the oil company Aramco, a Saudi-US joint venture. The so-called War on Terror, prompted by 9-11, which somewhat took the place of the Cold War as a means of maintaining the military-industrial complex in America, had little effect on oil in relation to Saudi supply and American demand. Yet grudge was harboured on both sides as personal interaction had become possible at various levels, not just within rarefied diplomatic circles. The enemy is no longer the other side of an iron curtain, and the perception of difference between peoples has changed significantly. The relative invisibility of nationality has given way to the deportment of ethnicity. Many citizens from all over the Islamic world, not just Saudi Arabia, have become the new bogeymen, even British citizens born in one-time colonies. Self-evidently, they are all Al-Qaeda members by dint of the way they wear their beards, dress their heads, and put on thobes. They are enemies of the West, despite living in the West and showing good faith regarding military alliances between NATO countries and the Gulf states. It should be pointed out, however, that the extent to which this latter point is the case is often the subject of fierce debate. Coming back to the events of 9-11... If the cure to the problem of Islamic terrorism following the attack on the World Trade Center were to have been the administering of a direct challenge to Saudi theocracy, it would have completely scuppered the Aramco arrangement. The symptoms, as it were, can only be addressed. These include the harboring and training of Al-Qaeda terrorists in the wider region more generally. Many such were said to be in Afghanistan, 
where revolution between the Taliban, domestic Islamic fundamentalists, and other factions allowed the US to intervene with a view to hunting down al-Qaeda terrorists, but with the resignation that, for a hydrocarbon world order, there was and is no fix to the problem of radicalization, merely an accommodation with it. Twenty years on, the US has chosen to cease all its operations in Afghanistan. A summary of the article. The Afghan security forces to date have depended on outsourced services to maintain the flow of supply and optimal function of equipment. Moreover, their military and police are in constant need of training to operate the advanced equipment that the United States has brought into the region. As of this spring, according to figures reported in the New York Times, there were over 18,000 Defense Department contractors in Afghanistan, including 6,000 Americans, 5,000 Afghans, and 7,000 from other countries. 40% of the department is responsible for logistics, maintenance, or training tasks it is becoming increasingly more difficult to hold contractors to account as performance standards drop. The New York Times further reports that the problem is especially acute for the Afghan Air Force. Quote, Not only does the small but professional fleet provide air support to beleaguered troops, but it is also essential to supplying and evacuating hundreds of outposts and bases across the country. The quickly thinning line that separates government and Taliban-controlled territory. The Inspectors General of the Pentagon, the State Department, and the U.S. Agency for International Development have attributed a lack of oversight to staff shortages and coronavirus-related restrictions and concluded that a continued U.S. presence on the mountainous, forbidding territory of Afghanistan, where the Taliban is a constant threat to the lives of U.S. military and civil personnel, is no longer sustainable. Now its relevance to the Monroe Doctrine. America's isolationism of the 19th century in relation to the Monroe Doctrine was not about America or the Americas alone, but rather reflected an attitude of apartheid between the old world and the new, the eastern and the western hemispheres. Since the Second Iraq War of 2003, a renewed sense of isolation from global affairs has emerged out of Washington. It is most apparent when politicians fail to make a clear-cut case for intervention based on turning any unrest to America's own economic advantage. The most heinous and so far only attack on the U.S. mainland, 9-11, still evokes grief, but not the same determination to occupy the territory of America's enemies. Furthermore, red scares belong very much to the 20th century. The U.S. provoked the Second Iraqi War out of fear of jihad waged militarily using weapons of mass destruction. The Korea War of 1950-53 between North and South prompted the U.S. to defend the South 
when the Soviet Union acquired the atom bomb and purportedly set about spreading Bolshevik revolution through the north of Korea onto the Sea of Japan and into the US from the west coast. What actually happened was that America chased the perceived communist threat down the China seas into Vietnam. The campaigns in Korea and Vietnam were conducted with the hubris of America as the world's moral arbiter. The US's response to 9-11, leading to its presence in Afghanistan, was similarly informed. All this activity was based on a pre-World War I view of the Monroe Doctrine as interpreted by Theodore Roosevelt, president from 1901 to 1909. Today, the complete withdrawal from Afghanistan by September this year, with the very real possibility of Russia and Iran filling the vacuum, has more in common with an earlier 19th century understanding of the doctrine in relation to regions and spheres of interest, but now with none of the binary simplicity of Western and Eastern hemispheres. John Quincy Adams, remembered as America's sixth president, as Secretary of State wrote the extract of text warning against Imperial Spain's threat to the Western Hemisphere, the New World, for the fifth president's annual address to Congress delivered on the 2nd of December 1823. It laid out America's foreign policy position. The British and Russian empires, through diplomatic channels, were given prior notice as would-be rivals rather than enemies. Monroe's address asserted that the Americas, North America, Latin America and the islands of the Caribbean came under the protection of the U.S., this would include safeguarding the sovereign rights of emergent South American countries such as Argentina, Brazil and Mexico. James Monroe proclaimed to Congress that the New World, the Western Hemisphere, was closed to further colonization and that any interference by the European powers of the Eastern Hemisphere, the old monarchical world, would be viewed as an act of hostility. However, America's self-appointed role as protector in the region against European expansion was only made possible by the Louisiana Purchase, that is to say the acquisition of mainly swamp land owned at the time by France running the entire length of the Mississippi River to the east, taking in all tributaries stretching westwards as far as what was then called New Spain. When Monroe announced his administration policy position on Latin America to Congress, he could do so with the authority of both the office of president as well as being co-signatory to this land purchase of 20 years earlier. The main architect of the purchase had been America's third president, Thomas Jefferson. If the nation's first George Washington, had led the original 13 British colonies to independence on a continent that remained colonially European, mainly Spanish, Jefferson, through this land purchase, started to expand the new nation into the Americas and eventually towards the Pacific. The Mississippi had been the natural border between colonial European powers and colonial Britain. 
the 13 American colonies east of the river. France, Portugal and Spain on the other side, Spain in particular, had colonised territories west of the Mississippi and south of the Rocky Mountains for nearly four decades. From 1763 until 1802, they had Louisiana before returning it to France just prior to the purchase. New Spain mined silver in Arizona and had been extracting this precious metal from areas all over Mexico and further south in the Americas since the 16th century. Much more silver and many more mineral resources would be discovered once the formerly European Spanish territories became part of the United States of America. New France at that time somewhat traded in beaver fur, fisheries and arable farm produce in Louisiana as best it could, given that the territory was seen more as a liability than an asset due to the land's uninhabitability. In 1803, France was at war with Britain. Victory for the former may have emboldened it as far as doing more with the territory of Louisiana. Victory for the latter might have led to claims involving the expansion of British Canada. Either way, the Old World, whether Gallic or Anglo-Saxon, was likely to be no further away than the western side of the Mississippi River. The most pressing issue for Napoleon at home was that he needed the wherewithal to equip and feed his army. He put Louisiana up for sale. Jefferson, as the buyer, had to match the haste of the seller while observing due congressional procedure. However, there was nothing in the United States Constitution about the purchase of land. Hitherto, Jefferson had been uncompromising over his country's founding document and demanded strict adherence to it regarding the ordinance of federal government and state rights. Congress, then as now, generally lays bare partisan differences in a two-party system of senators and representatives prior to protracted compromise. Presidential decree tends to override such differences, but leads to controversy that can make or break any sitting president's reputation. There was no time for the Democratic Republicans to debate with the other main party in Congress and then ratify an amendment to the Constitution. Prior to April 1803, there had been 11 amendments. The first 10 had been ratified all of a piece 12 years earlier and had taken more than two years to debate. Congressional proceedings over the 11th had taken nearly a year before ratification in 1795. The two political parties in the first quarter of the 19th century were the Democratic Republicans, the party of Thomas Jefferson, as well as James Monroe, and the Federalists under Alexander Hamilton, whose centralist policies were far better suited to dealing with the French over matters of land purchase. Hamilton was someone all too ready to apply a loose interpretation of the Constitution vis-à-vis -vis implied powers at state level when doing so would better serve the Union at national level. The Federalists were more accommodating of Britain, 
a country most democratic republicans still regarded as enemies and wanted a system of taxation similar to that of the UK's exchequer. Unravelling all the disparate interests and then realigning them in order to come to a provisional negotiating position over Louisiana in Congress would have led to a quite different and probably far less advantageous outcome for the US in the matter of acquiring the territory. To secure Louisiana on the best possible terms, Jefferson had to adopt the political modus operandi of Hamilton. He dispatched James Monroe to France in 1803 to work alongside the then Minister to France, Robert Livingston, to negotiate the purchase. Monroe must have gone with a burning sense of unfinished business. He had served as Minister to France himself under Washington from 1794, much to the latter's disappointment, who, seeing him as ineffectual, curtailed his tenure in office after only two years. The articles of purchase were signed on the 30th of April of that year by Monroe and Livingston on behalf of the United States. While Jefferson's posthumous reputation has been somewhat damaged by his sincerely held beliefs as to the ownership of slaves, his duplicity in riding slipshod over Congress regarding the Louisiana Purchase has only enhanced it. Would this have been the case had he secured Louisiana with what was minimally acceptable, unrestricted access to the port of New Orleans to maintain the movement of goods, mainly timber, through the Mississippi River Delta, out onto the Gulf of Mexico, and through to the Atlantic? In the event, America got ownership of the whole of Louisiana for $15 million and began forging a Republican national identity that would become markedly different from those of the old competing monarchies of Europe, but also create a mythology of exceptionalism, in fact very like that of the European powers throughout most of the 19th century, the white race as God's chosen people. We will look at this presently. The Monroe Doctrine, a term not coined until 1850, was synonymous with expansionism, which can also be seen by extension as synonymous with imperialism, not something the Founding Fathers would have recognised in this connection. Many of their forefathers had fled Britain two centuries earlier. They were Puritans, Protestants, against any form of established church with an ecclesiastical hierarchy and a monarch at its head. Despite the earlier break with Rome, the post-Reformation church of Henry VIII in England remained far too established for some. The rest is textbook school history. Plymouth, the Mayflower, New England... Monroe's address became a doctrine through no particular piece of legislation. It was something of an embellishment to America's sense of itself as articulated in 1845, its manifest destiny. In religious terms, the priesthood of the church within the consciousness of the individual soul, a form of Calvinism, the pursuance of which has led to an American history more damning than salutary. 
at this midpoint of the 19th century, according to maps drawn up based on America's seventh census. This is the one of 1845. Part of North America that we now call the United States of America, Bar Hawaii, was made up not only of states, of which the federal capital was Washington in the District of Columbia, but also areas that merely came under the jurisdiction of Congress, that is to say, territories. Territories had no representation in Congress, namely they were Oregon, Utah, as well as New Mexico westwards, then Minnesota eastwards. They partly encircled so-called unorganized territory, present-day Middle America, that is, the Dakotas in the north, and part of Minnesota eastward, below which were Nebraska, Kansas, with part of Missouri eastward, then, most southerly, Oklahoma. Each of the territories just mentioned, whether designated or unorganized, had land inhabited by Native Americans, indigenous Americans, whom European settlers, pushing in from the east of the Mississippi, wanted to organize civilize, as it were, into farmers, with designated plots, brooking no trespass, civilize them, so to speak, out of the open plain hunter-gathering that had defined their Aboriginal culture for thousands of years. Civilize them in no uncertain terms, to the extent that they could be herded onto reservations with the perverse expectation of their being grateful for the parameters beyond which no white man would intrude, despite their, the natives, having no innate sense of land possession or territorial borders. As mainly English-speaking Europeans pushed west towards the Pacific Ocean, looking for land to settle, they encountered other colonialists the Spanish, with a much longer but hardly more illustrious history of suppression in regard of the indigenous people of California and Mexico, tribal people sometimes described as native or red Indian, as were the hunter-gatherers of the Great Plains, mentioned a moment ago. But there were, and there are, many different Indian ethnicities, and the Comanche, say, of the Great Plains were very different from the Aztecs of pre-Columbian South America. All, whether pagan, pre-Christian, or Christian by way of the Church of Rome, were territorially an obstacle to the post-Reformation Calvinist settlers who were, if not always devoutly observant of the word, ever enthusiastic drunk, as it were, on the heady brew of religiosity and self-righteousness, while going about the dubious occupation of native lands, either solid already by a Spanish presence, or untouched by civilization. In contrast to the displacement of some, the deployment of others, Africans, was necessary for economic reasons, Cotton was labour-intensive and economically possible based only on slave labour. 
the territory of South Carolina, admitted to the Union in 1788, and then that of Mississippi, admitted in 1817, were the biggest producers of cotton on the side of the Mississippi River that had been British America. This connection with the old country was never lost, as cotton was needed in great bulk for the manufacturing of textiles in northern England. Many of these textiles were exported back across the Atlantic. Neither Aboriginal Indigenous Americans, nor Hispanic Americans, nor Africans under ownership of other Americans were among the chosen people for settler Americans, pilgrim father Americans, or evangelical Americans on a God-given mission. Manifest destiny, then, was informed by this revivalist sentiment. It meant, or was supposed to mean, liberation, strictly spiritual in the case of black Africans and native peoples of colour across the Americas, all of whom were expected to know their place in the divine order of things. In contrast, manifest destiny and liberation in the temporal sense for the white races meant democracy and the demographic fluidity that comes with a capitalist system of economic exchange initially based mainly on farmland. The Monroe Doctrine is ultimately an assertion of racial superiority entirely commensurate with imperialism. Neither of the two nations mentioned in James Monroe's original address, Tsarist Russia and Great Britain, looked to their own compromised circumstances in the light of Monroe's position on Latin America in 1823. Russia possessed serfs, working the rich soil in the south of the country, where much of modern-day Ukraine is to be found. Democratic Free America had no intention of interfering there at that time. As for Britain, although there were no slaves in this part of Europe, apart from a few in the port cities of Liverpool and Bristol, both Britain and America were commercially active in the buying and selling of human beings. The Royal Navy, along with its merchant arm, the biggest navy in the world, was a facilitator of slave transportation to both countries' mutual benefit. The country expected to take heed of America's foreign policy position in 1823 was Spain. It took a poet of empire, Raj-born Rudyard Kipling, not to so much call out American imperialism, but to recognize it for what it was and to celebrate it in terms of the white man's burden. We will come to this presently. The term the white man's burden was coined by Kipling as a celebration of American imperialism. It comes from the title of a poem, The White Man's Burden, The United States and the Philippine Islands. It was published in the Times of London and the New York Times on the 4th and 5th of February, respectively, in 1899. As a piece of jingoism rather than as something of literary merit, 
it expressed support for intervention in the Philippine Islands who had declared independence the previous year. Spain had ceded these islands in accordance with the Treaty of Paris, which brought an end to the 11-week Spanish-American War in Cuba. Cuba will be discussed in due course. The U.S. conflict with the Philippines would not be over until 1902, however, as the Filipinos themselves refused to accept the terms of the Paris Treaty despite military defeat in the capital. The United States of America regarded its presence anywhere in the Americas as sovereign, not so in the part of the Western Pacific, that is Southeast Asia, in particular the Philippines. If the Monroe Doctrine was the keystone of US foreign policy, in legal terms it was not fit for purpose beyond Latin America. How it came to be so reaches back to how the US Republican administration dealt with the Venezuela crisis a territorial dispute between this Latin American region and the British. Venezuela sought arbitration in early 1895 from the US over British territorial claims through the American ambassador in the country, who, on the urging of his hosts, invoked the Monroe Doctrine. This led to an amendment that in time worked against the interests of Venezuela. Richard Olney, briefly America's Secretary of State, understood the doctrine as giving the United States authority to mediate border disputes in the Western Hemisphere, in this half of the world, wheresoever on the globe contesting parties or countries may be located. Despite Venezuela feeling that recourse to the doctrine would tarry favour with the Americans, in 1897, Britain's claim to the territory of Guyana in Venezuela was largely upheld, with only about 10% of the territory remaining part of Venezuela. The Founding Fathers, including James Monroe and Patriots at the beginning of the 19th century, would have recognised the importance of American action in relation to the Venezuela crisis, had they survived to witness it. Whether they would have agreed with the decision to arbitrate over the territorial issue is a moot point. The imposition of a settlement binding on both sides was probably something they would have seen as beyond the remit of Monroe's original policy position, which, as mentioned earlier, only came to be regarded as a doctrine in 1850. Cuba, in relation to the Spanish-American War, had been a different matter. Located no more than 90 miles from the Florida coast, it was a Spanish colony up until 1898 and a vital port for America in relation to merchant shipping and the anchoring of a significant naval presence in Caribbean waters and further out onto the Atlantic and later the Pacific, once American engineers had built the Panama Canal. All this was contingent on inland stability on Cuba. However, by 1898, the unrest had led to the internment of the local population as part of Spain's reconcentration policy.
Exact figures are unavailable, but almost half a million detainees might have died as a result. So far, so consistent in terms of the Monroe Doctrine. These Spanish internment camps on Cuba had been clearly tantamount to the old world exerting an evil colonial influence over the new. There was a moral imperative to act, but little to be gained from liberating people suffering atrocities committed by either the US or Spain. The sinking of the USS Maine ostensibly triggered the American-Spanish War. However, these concentration camps encouraged a high-minded tone in Washington under President McKinley and then his successor Theodore Roosevelt, who felt that his nation's moral obligations regarding world peace lay beyond the Americas, beyond the Western Hemisphere. As with Cuba, the U.S., had taken sides in the colonial Philippines against the Spanish, but were not strictly in favor of local self-determination. Unlike Cuba, there was an alternative non-European claim. Japan, hardly a Latin American country, coveted the Philippines' natural resources. America preempted these designs by annexing Hawaii. U.S. preoccupations regarding zones of interest and mainland security were becoming wider. We have come back to the Philippines, which we somewhat left hanging. Let's correct this now with a recap. Richard Olney, Secretary of State from 1895 to 97, through an interpretation of the doctrine, set a legal framework for mediation in Latin America involving a minor power, Venezuela, and the world's biggest empire, Britain. When the US finally overcame the Philippines in 1902, in Southeast Asia, none of the major powers seemed to be taking notice. To continue, in 1904, Japan and Russia, major powers, were at war. Theodore Roosevelt was President of the United States. A further re-reading and legal interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine was needed as both these sides asked America's President to mediate. The ensuing peace conference was held in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1905. The so-called Roosevelt Corollary of 1904 to the Monroe Doctrine was the elephant in the room. America went into these negotiations with, if not a sense of imperialism, then one of imperiousness, as it had over the conflict between Venezuela and Britain. Both the Russian and Japanese governments accepted the terms of the settlement without question. However, the Japanese people were more wary of them than the Russian public. A piece of detail in Roosevelt's corollary, perhaps all too easily overlooked at the time in the light of recent events in the Philippines internationally and Cuba more locally, was to have longer-term consequences. Roosevelt declared in what was a State of the Union speech that the United States might, quote, exercise international police power in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence. Roosevelt 
would have had in mind the Spanish concentration camps discussed a moment ago, but also the Kishinev pogroms in Moldova the previous year and the anti-Christian Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the century. The mass slaughter of Native Americans would not have exercised the President's mind in the same way. From now on, America would intervene without compunction anywhere in the world whenever it served its own economic purposes or promoted the nation's self-proclaimed status as the world's policeman. Fifteen years later, an alternative doctrine determining world order would emerge. Presently, we will turn our attention to the Covenant of the League of Nations. The Monroe Doctrine remained at the heart of American foreign policy even after the epoch-changing circumstances of World War I. Democratic President Woodrow Wilson took America into the war in 1917, having run for a second term as president on the promise of keeping America out. Following the armistice of 1918, with much to his credit as far as turning the tide of the war in favour of the Allies, he was happy enough to take the plaudits from the French as the Covenant of the League of Nations emerged from the Paris Peace Conference. However, this most aloof of men, contemptuous of the doings of ordinary men, with all the initial adulation in Europe, it was possible for him to overlook the fact that his party did not hold the Senate and House in the capital back across the Atlantic. Woodrow Wilson remained implacable. By 1919, Article 10 of the Covenant came to exercise concerns in the U.S. Congress, which was Republican majority-led. It runs as follows. The members of the League undertake to respect and preserve, as against eternal aggression, the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League, in case of any such aggression, or in case of any threat or danger of such aggression, the Council shall advise upon the means by which this obligation shall be fulfilled. The Lodge Reservations, 14 in all, were the work of Henry Cabot Lodge, the Republican majority leader in the Senate and the chair of its Foreign Relations Committee. These reservations soon enough put the skids under the President's blueprint for a new world order. Lodge, however, was not totally against a League of Nations, subject to reform but uncompromising over Article 10 of the Covenant. Take the second reservation. The United States assumes no obligation to preserve the territorial integrity or political independence of any other country or to interfere in controversies between nations, whether members of the League or not, under the provisions of Article 10, or to employ the military or naval forces of the United States under any article of the treaty for any purpose, unless in any particular case the Congress, 
which, under the Constitution, has the sole power to declare war or authorize the employment of the military or naval forces of the United States, shall, by act or joint resolution, so provide. And the fifth reservation, the United States will not submit to arbitration or to inquiry by the Assembly or by the Council of the League of Nations, provided for in said Treaty of Peace, any questions which in the judgment of the United States depend upon or relate to its long-established policy commonly known as the Monroe Doctrine said doctrine is to be interpreted by the united states alone and is hereby declared to be wholly outside the jurisdiction of said league of nations and entirely unaffected by any provision contained in the said treaty of peace with germany with the phrase, quote, said doctrine is to be interpreted by the United States alone and is hereby declared to be wholly outside the jurisdiction of said League of Nations, end of quote, Cabot Lodge was making it clear that any action carried out by the League may be measured against the doctrine and at least in theory found to compromise American interests so warranting U.S. counter-action. The significance of the Lodge reservations today is that the veto on declaring war implicit in objections to Article 10 of the League were incorporated in the Charter of the United Nations. Today, whenever American troops are active in the name of the United Nations, they are answerable for their actions only to the American Commander-in-Chief, the President, and the Congress. Actions by non-American troops answerable to the Security Council of the UN are merely tolerated, sometimes under sufferance by the USA. Coming back to the present and the Biden administration without further delay. In 1999, the United Nations Security Council adopted Resolution 1267, bringing into effect the Al-Qaeda and Taliban Sanctions Committee. Clearly, the US were worried about the threat of Islamic terrorism, but could not have imagined the events of 9-11 two years later and the obvious accusation, in hindsight, that the forming of this committee amounted to too little too late. When America took action for the second time in Iraq, it was presented to the American public as a crusade. Someone had to pay. On the one hand, it meant retribution. American service personnel, men and women, were told that the enemy, Al-Qaeda, were disciples of Satan. The Bible Belt was now in power, remember. The American religious right had come out in great numbers to vote for the 43rd president, George W. Bush, who himself is an evangelical Christian. On the other hand, the war on terror had to yield business opportunities beyond stimulating corporate America, that is, the military-industrial complex, in its preparation for military engagement, following an economic slump at home between 2000 and 2002. 
the American frontier spirit, first evident at the time of the Louisiana Purchase, informed both the religious sentiment in the early 21st century and the entrepreneurship related to the promise of civil contracts accruing in far-out war-torn lands where America were fighting. Eight years ago, however, the Watson Institute of International Studies at Brown University estimated the total cost of the war as amounting to $1.7 trillion. Some other estimates go as high as $6 trillion. Whatever the moral rights or wrongs of war in Iraq and presence in Afghanistan, both had become financially unsustainable. President Barack Obama, after George W. Bush, carried on in the same vein throughout the aftermath of the war and continuing operations in Afghanistan, both by now each in its own way an expensive chaos resulting from resentment in both these places at the continued presence of U.S. military personnel War did not go away. It simply became a brother-on-brother sectarian war within Iraq and within Afghanistan. Both civil wars, in other words, but with none of the conflict associated with disagreements that come with temporal claims over land and systems of governance. The worst of the civil conflict in Iraq was ending by the time President Trump entered the White House. When taking a hard look at the cost of maintaining a presence in Al-Qaeda's training ground, Afghanistan, he decided that it was, quote, too dangerous to let shithole countries drag down America as the leader of the world's dollar economy to borrow from his own illiterate rhetoric. Today, however, in the matter of the financial cost of staying in Afghanistan, President Biden is much more Trump's successor in what he has inherited than he was Obama's vice president, necessarily loyal to the process of troop withdrawal in tandem with heavy peacekeeping support, including the spiralling business expenses discussed at the top of this post. America's current president has shown no compunction over putting an end to the drain on financial resources Afghanistan has proved responsible for. If America's present standing on the world stage, following its withdrawal from Afghanistan, is to be measured against an interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine, in all its manifest iterations from its original pronouncement nearly two centuries ago, through to the Olney and Roosevelt Amendments, and then on to how it was invoked in order to stop America becoming members of the League of Nations in 1920, then it seems that it has swung back very much to how the surviving founding fathers of the first quarter of the 19th century understood Monroe's foreign policy statement even before it became a doctrine.